Thank you for visiting the openword.org, where you can find a verse-by-verse exposition of almost the entire Holy Bible and other theological resources. Welcome to the next part of the series from Alan Schaefer. First Corinthians 12, the chapter we've all been waiting for. All right. Um, yeah. Um, just if you want to look at something, there's um, some material on, on the openword.org site on spiritual gifts that's helpful reading. All right. And I'm going to talk a little bit about what this, what this is about here. But um, one of the things to keep in mind as we start, there's a section coming up here of 12, 13, and 14. That is the same section. And that's the section dealing on spiritual gifts. All right. What do you know 13 as? The love chapter. And usually what happens is people unplug that and bring it out and disconnect it from the discussion of what Paul is talking about. But really the love chapter smack dab in the middle of his discussion on spiritual gifts. All right, which means that contextually you're only going to understand 13 if you understand 12 and 14. All right, so that's how we're going to approach this. Okay, now when we talk about a spiritual gift, one of the one of the difficulties here is there's a lot of a lot of stuff out there that we have heard of that we've been exposed to that um, passes off as spiritual gifts as as um, you know this is one of those topics that people don't like to talk about because it's highly controversial. Um, you have some that don't talk about spiritual gifts at all. You've got others that make it a big thing. Um, we're all aware of the Pentecostal persuasion. And usually when you talk about spiritual gifts, the whole thing of tongues comes up. You know, that's the big thing that everybody wants to argue about. And we're going to talk about tongues. We're going to get there. Don't worry about it. But um, what Paul wants to talk about here in the Corinthians church, the topic, the next topic, is the issue of spiritual gifts. And this is precipitated by their abuse of one of the gifts, one of the spiritual gifts, which was the gifts of tongues. And we're going to talk about that um, as we work through here. But as a as a as a as a general overview, um, what I want to do is, and this is written on my my website. I don't have a sheet written this out written, with it written out on, but you can get it off the website. What is? Let's ask a question. What is a spiritual gift? What is that? All right. And if you study the scriptures, a spiritual gift is a divine enablement. All right. Given by the Spirit of God. In fact, I'm going to write this out. Let's see if, if I can remember my own definition of it. All right. That, that's, that's the real key. So the openword.org is your site? Yeah. It's a divine. It has all my papers and all my work and all kinds of stuff on it. It's a divine enablement. blog you on that? Yeah. It's a divine enablement, okay, given by the Holy Spirit, okay, at the moment of salvation, salvation, for the purpose, purpose, of edifying, buying the body of Christ. Okay? 
That's what a, that's what a spiritual gift is. So that that's something you really want to get in your head. Okay. It's a divine enablement. Okay. We're going to talk about what these enablements are. Okay. It's given by the Holy Spirit. Who gives you your spiritual gift? The Holy Spirit does. All right. When do you get it? At the moment of your salvation. And why do you have it? To edify the body of Christ. Notice, notice what it says here. It's not to edify you. It's to edify the body of Christ. Okay? And it's a divine enablement. Okay? Now, usually when you start talking about spiritual gifts, people start throwing out these spiritual gift inventories and, you know, well, do you have the gift of giving? Do you have the gift of prophecy or the gift of words and knowledge and all kinds of weirdness and stuff like that? Um, what's the best way to understand this enablement? Um, if you look at spiritual gifts, there's four passages in the New Testament that talk about spiritual gifts. Okay? There's 1 Corinthians 12. 12 through 14 to talk about spiritual gifts. Um, Romans chapter 8, and I think, it, or chapter um, 12, verses 8, I think it's 8 through something, 8 following, has, has spiritual gifts in them. Um, you've got Ephesians 4, that talks about spiritual gift. Ephesians 4, I think 12 and 13, right around in there, talk about spiritual gift. And you've got um, 1 Peter 4, 8 that talks about spiritual gifts. Those are those are those are your um, your passages that really speak of them. When you look at spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, I'm pulling this off the my top of my head. You have to look at my notes to make sure. I think there's about 28 different enablements given. I think there's about eight of them here. There's two of them here. And there's four gifted offices there. Okay. Um, 1 Peter 4.8 says, um, as, as each one has received the manifold gift of God, so let him minister. Those that speak, speak as the oracles God. Those that serve, you know, serve well. Um, Ephesians 4.12 talks about he is given... Um, gifts to the church, pastor, teachers, um, evangelists, pastor, teachers, prophets, and apostles. Um, Romans 8 lists, I think, about eight different enablements. Um, I think there's giving mentioned there, um, a couple others. And then 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, there's about, I think, about 28 different ones here. If you add them all up, you get about 30, 31 different ones. All right. Here's the thing to understand, though. How many spiritual gifts do you have? One. One. Where do I get that? What passage tells you that? What passage tells you that you have one spiritual gift? As each one, First Peter 4, as each one has received the gift. It says the gift. Okay? So the question to ask is how many spiritual gifts do you have? You have one spiritual gift. What is that spiritual gift made up of? A blend 
of different enablements. It's a blend of them. Okay? Um, huh? Yeah. Um, Steve here is a, uh, he's an art expert. Right? You work with the art museum. Yes. How many primary colors are there? What are they? Red, yellow, mm-hmm. red. That's really the best. Yellow. <laughs> okay. So, if you take an artist and you give him a big can of yellow, red paint, a big can of yellow paint, and a big can of blue paint, he can mix them and make any color you want. That's the one you can't. Okay. If you're a computer person. You've got RGB, red, green, blue. I can take those. I can mix them and make 16 million different colors, depending on how much of red, green, and blue I put together. Okay? Think of your spiritual gift as that. What you have is God has 28 different kinds of things, and the Holy Spirit takes a little bit of this, and takes a little bit of that, a little bit of that, mixes it all together, there you go. There's your spiritual gift. Various strengths, various um, concentrations, if you want to think of them. Um, and it's unique. That's why every individual, every Christian, has a unique spiritual gift. All right. Now we're going to talk about the categories that they fall into. All right. But generally, generally, there are um, millions. Of spiritual gifts, different kinds of spiritual gifts. So let's take a let's, let's ask a question here. Let's look at me. What's my spiritual gift? Okay, I have a good I have a good chunk of teaching in there, right? So you know, God, when I became a believer, I became a Christian. God mixed a a good dose of teaching in there. Um, anything else? Huh? Well, I, I'm, I, I like giving, you know, I'm, I'm, I, now I, I, I don't give as much as some, but I, 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 I'm, I like to be generous. What else? What other? I'm not a preacher. Yeah, no, no, no. I, I heard you preach. I have a little bit of administration. You know what? I can't stand administering. <laughs> All right. So I have a little bit of that, you know, maybe a little bit, you know. <laughs> I mean, I couldn't be a bean counter. I mean, I'd go bananas bean, counting beans all day long, you know. Um, what else? Wisdom. Why? I got to have something to teach, right? Okay. So wisdom and probably a good little bit there of knowledge. Okay. And we're going to define these as we work through the text. But, you know, just to give you a heads up, knowledge is the facts. Wisdom is, okay, now that I know the facts, relate that to life. You know anybody that has a lot of head knowledge and they don't know beans about how to live? You know, they have a lot of knowledge but no wisdom. All right? So you, you sort of want both. Now, if you're going to teach the Bible, you need a little bit of these here. What are you going to teach, right? So, so what, what God did is God mixed this together in a particular formula and gave it to me. All right. Now, um, let's say we have a person here that teaches kindergarten kids. 
does she or he have the same sort of gifts that I have? Probably. Probably. But what's different? There's a difference. We both are teach, but she or he is gifted in a particular way to teach children, whereas I have a ability to teach adults. But we're both teachers. Now you understand the verse that's coming up here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Okay? Verse 4 and 5 and 6. There are diversities of gifts, but the same spirit. What's diversities of gifts? Well, the way God has mixed this all together for you. There are diversities of gifts. And then he says, there are differences of ministries. What's that? Well, that gift might be, my gift of teaching, you may have um, handicapped children, first graders, second graders, adults, high school kids, you know, and you can't take a college professor and say, I want you to go teach the kindergarten kids. That might not work very well, right? Because he's not gifted or she's not gifted to do that. So God has given you different, different uh, ministries. And then it says here there are diversities of activities. So there are diversities of who you teach, where you teach, level of teaching, but it's all teaching. And God has actually taken the spiritual gifts and he's mixed them up for each one of us. All right. And given us a particular ministry that we can go and serve in. Now, Let's answer some questions. Does every Christian have a spiritual gift? Yeah, yeah. Yes. If you are a Christian, you have a spiritual gift. What is that spiritual gift made up of? One or more, and usually it's or more, divine enablements. All right. These are, these are different enablements that God's mixed together, and he gives each of us a different dosage of that. Okay. Um. How do you know what your spiritual gift is? What do you like to do? That's one of the great things that people get confused on. They run around, I don't know what my spiritual gift is. I don't. Well, what do you want to do? Well, that can't be it, because if it's a spiritual gift, it's got to be something I absolutely hate to do. Now, wait a minute. Right? Is God going to give you a gift that you hate doing? No. No. I mean... So ask yourselves, if, if the pastor of the church came up and said, okay, you can do anything in the church you want, you can have any ministry you want, do anything you want, what do you want to do? Your answer is going to be probably pretty close to what your spiritual gift is. What do you enjoy doing, first of all? And when you do it, are people edified? Those two come together, you got it. It's not that hard. You don't need a test. Can somebody else tell you what your spiritual gift is? Um, they can. They can have some hints, I mean, maybe. Like, say your spiritual gift is this, this, and that. But shouldn't you know yourself? You should know yourself. I don't need you to tell me what. Right. No, I can look at you and say, you know, given your temperament, just observing you around the church and all that, and seeing the things that you enjoy doing, I would probably say your gift is close to this. I mean, I could maybe make that broad. Connection. It may be. 
because it's up to you. What do you want? What does God give, put a burden on your heart? What do you want to do? What do you love doing in the church? What do you really enjoy doing? That's what your gift is. Your gift is not something you despise and hate to do. Right? That's not how God has God's gifted us. God does not tell you to do something you despise. And God's not going to have you do something that's not edifying the body of Christ. You know, there's some people say, well, I have the gift of teaching. And the people in class say, no, he doesn't. <laughs> well, if you all were falling asleep and, you know, nine o'clock, you know, you're playing your Game Boys and all that stuff while I'm teaching, probably I don't have the gift. Right? So the, the point here is that what we have done in the, in the church is we've, as everything, we've overcomplexified stuff and made it muddy and made it difficult. Look, it's not that tough to do. In a quiet moment, if you're, if you're not sure what your spiritual gift is, in a quiet moment, sit down and fantasize about the pastor coming to you and saying, you can have any ministry in the church except with two conditions. One, you have to enjoy what you're doing. And two, people have to be built up by you doing it. What would you really want to do? And that's probably what you, your gift is. Sure. You might know your gift is teaching, but the question would be who? In what context? You know, try different things. There's nothing wrong with trying things. Um, I, I had one guy say, you know, Alan, you know, you really need to get an evangelism. You'd be good at that. Look, I've tried it. I'm not an evangelist. I'm not. I'm sorry. I'm not an evangelist. Does that mean I'm not to evangelize? No, no it doesn't. But I'm not I'm not gifted in that. I, I know better than, than to do that. I had one guy say, you need to be a pastor. No, I don't. I can't stand the sheep. <laughs> He looked at me. I told him that. He looked at me like, what in the world? I said, no, I understand what I'm trying to say. Being a pastor is more than preaching a sermon. Being a pastor is when Miss McGilly comes in and crying over some problem in her life. And, you know, you're trying to encourage her and help her. And, you know, it's the 25th time this month she's brought the same problem. You know, and you don't. I mean, I can't handle that kind of stuff. I'm just not geared. to. Now, there are some people that are uniquely geared to that. That's their gift. You know, pastors needed to be gifted to do that. They do. I know I don't have that gift. I'm not an administrator. Can I administrate? And yeah, I can do that. But you know what? That does not. I don't want to do that. Let someone else organize and do that kind of stuff. I don't I don't want to do that. Know yourself a little bit. You got to know yourself. But the thing is, to find your gift, you're going to do something that you enjoy doing, and that when you do it, you you feel a sense of purpose and fulfillment and joy. And people who who are who you're ministering to are edified, are built up, are encouraged. That's your gift. That's where God's called you, and that's what you should do. And one of the great mistakes we have in the church is we're trying to do someone else's gift. I can't do your spiritual gift. If I do that, I'm going to be frustrated and annoyed and irritated, and it isn't going to work. And don't let somebody put you on a guilt trip. You know. Sometimes 
you, you don't see yourself. Um, and the Lord's really got to break you of insecurities, or He's got to break you. And when I first got saved, I was I was really mo- I was a really motivated person, really easy to win souls and stuff. And uh, Pastor asked me to work with you. See, I just did it out of obedience. So I said, yeah, I'll work with him. But in about two years in there, they started calling me pastor, and I really didn't like that title. Mm-hmm. Like, please don't call me pastor. And five years into it, now ten years into it, it was really hard to see myself. I just see myself as a motivator, as an encourager, as just someone that could pull people together. But when they started labeling me, like, you're a pastor, and then my pastor told me, I, I really think you have a pastoral call in your life, you should really pursue it. That it was just really hard for me to see myself that way. You might not have saw yourself with that title, but someone said, what do you like to do? Right. What you did was the work of a pastor. Right, but the title intimidated me. Right, the right. The title of an elder intimidated yeah. me until I seen what it was. Yeah. How, you know, so a lot of times people, you, your gifts, they just stand out. People can just see them a mile away. And then when they start saying, well, you have a gift for this, you have a gift for that, and you're like, Oh, no. I don't see myself that way. Yeah. See, someone asked me, you know, they said, what do you want to, you know, what, what do you enjoy doing? My idea is give me a classroom with people who want to study the Word of God and leave me alone. I don't need to be a deacon. I don't need to be on the boards. You know, I don't need to be some big schmuck. I don't need, I, I just give me a class and, and, and people want to learn. That's what I want to do. That's what I enjoy doing. That's what I get. You know, I feel I feel like this is where God has called me. And obviously I have people like Jamie who just won't go away, who come back semester after semester, who who apparently I think at least if unless he's snookering me, is edified. So that means that and it's not me doing this. You understand who is who's empowering this is the other thing. Who's empowering your spiritual gift? The Holy Spirit. It's not you. Pastoral theology, I took the last year, it's the wild term. Pastor's job, the flock, the congregation, yeah. what kind of spiritual people they have, find out. And then what, which place they put in. Very important pastoral theology. And what happens is God is gifted by one of the things that we're going to come up here in Corinthians, is God has gifted the church with a multitude of people with differing gifts. So that every issue is covered. Okay? And what we need to understand here, two things. You know, some, you know, I'm, I'm in, in one hour, two hours, we're going to encapsulate, you know, a 10 week course on spiritual gifts that I taught. But one of the dangers is number one, you're exercising someone else's spiritual gift. Or number two, you belittle someone else's gift. You got to be careful there too. We're going to talk the eyeball and the foot syndrome here. You can't be an eye and say, I don't need the foot. Right. Nor can you be a foot and saying, well, you know, I'm just not much around here. They don't need me. You know, um, we're all needed. And what, what, what the Bible says, not only here, but in Ephesians 4, Paul says, for the body to function, for your physical body to function well, all the pieces have to function well. And for a body of Christ to function well, all the members have to function well, do what they are called to do, and not what someone else is called to do. Okay? And that's why, you know, when missionaries come in, I, I don't get guilty when a missionary says, you know, unless you, you know, 
give up your job and come over here to Bongo Bongo and eat tarantula soup and lizard guts for lunch and, and, and walk barefoot through the you know jungle to reach the natives. You're not a Christian. It's like, look, maybe God's called you to that. But he's not called me to that. But you wouldn't be out there doing what you're doing if it wasn't for me here doing what I'm doing. We're all in this together. We all work together, you know, and and um, yeah, you want to encourage young people to consider missions and consider these things. But listen, what does God want them to do? What's God called them to do? And it's usually what they have a desire to do. God, God works through our desires. You know, we got this thing, you know. Seriously, we got we got this really bad thing in Christianity where somehow we think if someone's in the will of God, they're miserable. The will of God is something that you absolutely do not want to do. Whatever it is, you don't want to do it. But you do it after all, because you know you look, that's not that's not what God that's not Christian. God God's will is something. If you're in God's will, it's a it's a joy to be there. It's not a burden. You're not waking up every day, oh, no, I got it. Oh. It's something you want to do. It's something you look forward to doing. I look forward to teaching this class. I really do. This is one of the highlights of my week being in here. You know? What? Yeah. I look forward to coming. Oh, good, good. Yeah. <laughs> but but, but when, you, when it comes to spiritual gifts, we've got to understand, you know, the basic thing. It's something you want to do. It's made up of different enablements. It's empowered by the Holy Spirit. It's given to you at the moment of your salvation. All right. And it's for this is the big thing. Edifying the body of Christ. It's not for you. It's not for your benefit. It is not to draw attention to yourself. All right. And one of the problems, and this is why Paul brings this up, is one of the problems in the Corinthian church is you could trot a few miles north to Delphi where they had the mystery religions going and the tongues and the ecstatic utterances and speech. And what they had done in the Corinthian church is they said the more bizarre the behavior, the more godly you were. Now I'm going to say something right now. Understand this. The Holy Spirit does not lead you to do bizarre behavior. Bottom line, I don't care where you land on tongues or anything else, it's not going to be bizarre. You know, when you got these people up in Toronto saying it's the Holy Spirit that would cause you to uncontrollably roll on the floor laughing hysterically, that's not the Holy Spirit, folks. God does not play mumbo-jumbo games. When the Spirit comes upon you, you're not rolling around laughing. You're not barking like a dog. You're not growling like a lion. That's they got that down at the Brownsville Revival, they got people barking and growling. Now, if you look in the the New Testament, who are the ones that are barking and growling? They're demon-possessed. All right? That's not the whole... You're telling me if God shows up, you're going to act bizarrely? You're going to flip out and run, walk, you know, roll around on the floor foaming at the mouth? That's the Holy Spirit? That's not the Holy Spirit. God's a God of order. And, and, and what happens is, is in some of these movements, the more bizarre, the more weird the behavior, the godlier you are. And what had happened in the Corinthian church is everybody wanted this ecstatic, in their view, the ecstatic utterances, because that was the real Christians. Everybody else, if you didn't have that, you've not arrived yet. 
Okay, and one of the great aberrations in the modern spiritual gifts movement that you see out there is you got the Benny Hens of the world telling you if you're not speaking in tongues, you've not arrived. You don't really have the Holy Spirit until you get the double anointing. And that's not what Paul's going to be dealing with that here, because the purpose of spiritual gifts is not to draw attention to yourself. And listen to this. It's not to draw attention to the Holy Spirit. You know that, right? Who's the Holy Spirit? What's the Holy Spirit in business to point people to? Christ, not to himself. So any movement that makes the focus of that movement, the Holy Spirit is what? It's not genuine, it's aberrant, because that's not what the Spirit is there for. The Spirit is not there to draw attention to himself. The Spirit is there to draw people to Christ. And who does Christ point people to? The Father. The Holy Spirit is not there to draw attention to himself. That's, that's not what his ministry is. I'm sorry. Well, that's basically the test. Mm -hmm. Determine if that is the Holy Spirit. What is it pointing to? Yeah. And, you know, I, re I remember looking at some of these people, not all, but some of them, and, and the goal of their ministries is bizarre behavior. Well, that's off right there. That's, that's not right. Now, if the goal of their ministry is peace, you know, prosperity and wealth, and that, that's based on what greed. So think about it. Is greed a sin or not? Okay, so greed's a sin, and the thrust of their ministry is to get people to sin by definition. That's a false teacher. Don't go down that route. Don't go there. All right. Yeah, they sort of faded off, fizzled out. You know, the Toronto Vineyard, I guess, is going still a little bit. But 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 these are the basic these are the basic parameters. I'm trying to give you basic parameters of spiritual gifts. They're given to the body of Christ. They're to edify the body of Christ. They're to be um, energized by the Holy Spirit and done with love. That's that's why First Corinthians 13 is in there. I'm giving you a heads up. Why does Paul plot First Corinthians 13 in the middle of First Corinthians 12 and 14? Because he's trying to say that your gift, whatever you do, should be motivated by love. If it's not, you're a clanking bell and a Clanging symbol. Yeah, you're, you're just you're just noise. All right. If it's not motivated by love, it's just noise. And when you have people who are motivated by drawing attention to themselves, making themselves out to be something, that is a sounding that's sounding brass and tank clink, clanging bells and tinkling cymbals. That's noise. That's not. If you're not motivated by love, and what is love? Love is the purpose of building up the body of Christ. You know, and that's what it's for. So with that as sort of the background, let's start going through 1 Corinthians 12. And we'll work through and you'll see where this will come from. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. You know that you are Gentiles carried away to these dumb idols wherever you were led. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed. And no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now. What was the aberrant spiritual gift that, they, that, was, that was just slamming this church? It was the gift of tongues. All right. Now, I know I got to get ahead of myself here, but let's understand. What is the gift of tongues? We're going to come back and talk about this, but let's get the basis here. What is the gift of tongues? Okay, well, I'll tell you what the gift of tongues is. All right. It comes from the Greek word glossé. Glossé. And glossé is a language. It's a language. 
It's language. Okay? So when the Bible talks about the gift of tongues, it's talking about the gift of language is. How do you know this? Acts chapter 2. Remember Pentecost? Holy Spirit falls. They speak in tongues. And what immediately do people say? I can understand it. All right. Now, when you go to your average Pentecostal church and you got people speaking in tongues, does anybody understand what they're saying? No. That's not the gift of tongues. The biblical gift of tongues, as defined and as practiced in Acts, you go to all four places, Acts 2, Acts 8, Acts 19, and Acts 10, it was all a known language that someone could interpret. Ermanuo means to interpret. Okay, and in fact, later on in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul says, if you have someone speaking in a languages in your church, there'll be somebody there to interpret it or there to shut up. And why is that? If C. Lee gets up and gives me a wonderful sermon in Korean, I have no idea what he said. I could, it doesn't do me a bit of good. A bunch of noise to me. I don't know what he said. Now, you could have Korean people in there, and they're emailing hallelujah and jumping up and down, and I have no idea what he's talking. Why? Because if I don't understand it, it doesn't do me any good. It doesn't what? Edify. It doesn't edify me. It doesn't build me up. And that's what Paul says later on in 1 Corinthians 14. I'd rather say five words that you can understand than 10,000 that you can't. All right? So understand this. The, the biblical gift of tongues was the ability to speak a foreign language, not gobbledygook. All right. I had a case where I heard um, it was a couple of guys having dueling tongues. Literally, they were, they were two of the, I forget who it was. It was, um, I forget their names. I don't want to put them out. But they were, they were speaking at some crowd, and they started dueling in tongues. They, one would blab something, the other would blab something, and the, the crowd was amening and hallelujah. I had no idea what these guys were saying. You know, and they thought it was some wonderful manifestation. I'll tell you what, there was no Holy Spirit in that. Because when, when the New Testament believers spoke in tongues, there were people there that could understand it and interpret it and know what it said. So if, if you're in a church service, and somebody starts speaking in tongues, should that up, if, if somebody know how to translate, should they just start translating it? I've been in a service where this girl was speaking in tongues, and this other lady just started translating it for me. How do you know the translation was right? I did. That's the thing, I did. Um, if I was a pastor, I'd tell the woman to sit down and be quiet, because that's what it says in 1 Corinthians 14, women are not allowed to do it. What? Yep, First Corinthians 14, the women are not to say, not speak in tongues in church. First Corinthians 14, don't look at me. I didn't write it. Paul did. Yeah. We're going to, you know. Yeah. And we're going to talk, we're going to come back and hit the tongues because it, it, it rears its head because that's the precipitating aberration that causes Paul to write this, but in writing it, he talks about gifts in general, but the reason he's writing is because of their abuse of the tongues. And what's happened in the Corinthians church is they had people popping up in the meeting, all other, everybody was popping up and spouting off this and spouting off that, and, and the, the church service had become total chaos. 
you know, and, and that's why he writes in First Corinthians 14, God is the God of order, not confusion. It's not chaotic. And that's where he says, if you do have it, let it be by, by one and let someone else interpret. You can't have five or six people spouting at the same time. See, that goes back to, well, it's the Holy Spirit led me. I can't help it. That's bizarre behavior. That's not the Holy Spirit. That's not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit doesn't operate that way. Does God want you to understand what he's saying? Yes. yes. So why is God going to have you blurt out a bunch of stuff that you don't know what you're saying? How does that help you? Well, the Holy Spirit will overpower your will. No, he doesn't. It doesn't help you. He doesn't make you speak and what Paul is saying, in essence, what evidently was happening, and, and some commentary just go on to this, that even in the Corinthian church, you had people sitting spouting off this, these tongues, so to speak, and they're actually cursing God. And that's not the Holy Spirit. It's not the Holy Spirit. And Paul is saying, you know, in verse 4, and we talked about this, there are diversities of gift, but it's the same spirit. Who energizes every spiritual gift? The Holy Spirit. There are difference of ministries. That gift may be exercised in different contexts to different people in different ways. But it's the same Holy Spirit. And there are different activities, but it's the same God who works in all. Behind spiritual gifts, no matter what context, to who, how it is administered, and what you know mixture they are, it's the Holy Spirit who is energizing this for the purpose of building up other believers in the body of Christ. And there are differences. Then he says, he says, for example, for to one is given the word of wisdom through the spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the same spirit. Now, people have gone, I've seen on people, oh, oh, I got a word of knowledge. There's somebody in the audience. Look, that's not words of knowledge. That's not, that's not what it is. They make that up. What is knowledge? Is this miraculous stuff here? What is knowledge? Knowing, to learn. What is he saying? Some people have the ability to really, you know, you know, there are certain people that just have a, they have a great knack for understanding scripture. They love to study it or, you know, they, they just, they write commentaries. You know, and other people have the word of wisdom. What's that? The ability to take the word of God and apply. You ever run into those people? You know, they don't know Greek, but I'll tell you what, they really know how to apply the word of God. And who's behind both of those? The Holy Spirit is working behind it. There are people in your churches, there are some people in your churches that are the theologians. There are other people that, you know, they just have a way of being able to cut through all the gobbledygook of life and just, you know, just, just get right down to the bare thing that needs to be done. They have ability to see through things. You know, those are the people with wisdom. Um, to another, they have faith. What does it mean, faith? Faith to go above and beyond and believe God for the impossible. You know, there's some people that can do that. They just, you know, you just you scratch your heads. I think George Mueller is one of those guys. You ever know who George Mueller was? He ran an orphanage in, I think it was Bristol, England. I think it was Bristol or London, one. And uh, called the kids down one day. They didn't have any breakfast, have any food. Call the kids and have them get their bowls and sit at the table and say, you know, we're going to thank God for our meal. There wasn't a meal. And as he's praying, there's a knock on the door. Some guys said, uh, you know, I represent so-and-so bakery, you know, 
the wheel just fell off my carriage and I got a whole thing out here full of bread. You need any bread? And he did that again and again and again. That guy's nuts. I say that in a nice way. You understand what I mean? He had the ability to believe God for the impossible. I mean, he believed God. Someone asked you, how do you like your new pastor? They said, boy, he's a praying man. He has faith. And so what do you mean? He said, boy, he asked things. He asked God for things our other preacher didn't even know God had. You know, um, there are people that have that gift of faith that believe God for the impossible. You know, and then it says here on there's another one has gifts of healings by the same spirit and the working of miracles. Um, we got to talk about we'll, we'll come back here and in, in, in a minute here and talk about that to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another different kinds of tongues. That's languages. There's some people that can pick up a foreign language really easily. You ever notice that? And other people, you just, no matter how hard you try, you just can't, it doesn't make sense, you know. Um, to another interpretation, what's that? To interpret, ermenuo, all right, to translate. But one and the same spirit works all these things, distributing each individually as he wills. Who gives you the spiritual gift? The Holy Spirit. Why? Because he wants to. Okay? Now, when you look at spiritual gifts, they really fall into three major categories, of gifts, okay? When you boil them all down, they fall in one of these sort of slots. You've got the uh, serving gifts. There are some people that their spiritual gift centers around service, service in the body of Christ. Um, some examples of serving kinds of giftedness would be church administrators. Um, it would be people who, uh, the, the, you know, um, huh? Ushers, greeters, uh, the custodial work that, you know, the people who, who, you know, all those kinds of things, you know, <laughs> they have the ability to just minister to people and like the deacons did serving, ministering to people. That's one great categorization of gift. You've got another category, which is your speaking gifts. These are the, um, the teachers, the preachers, the, the um, evangelists, the ones who, who use their, their speaking gift. And then you have another gift category called the sign gifts. All right. Now, the big fight today is whether the sign gifts are still here or not. That's where the fight is. Okay. Um, what were the purpose of the sign gifts? To confirm the gospel message. Yeah, they were a sign. Okay. What do you need signs for? To validate the message and to grab attention. To validate the message. To, yeah, to, it's a validator. Okay. Um, you know, let's just take an example, the gift of healings. And I feel bad because I'm condensing so much into so little time. But I got a lot of stuff out on the website you can poke through and, and it fills us all in. But let's take the gift of healing. There's some people say, well, you got, Paul says, you know, there are different, Gifts of healing here, right? In the early church, did were, were, did some people have the ability to heal? Well, sure, Paul did, right? Um, keep, you know, poor guy fell out of the window dead, picked him up, right? Um, they had the ability to heal. Did they have the ability to heal today, like they did in the New Testament? 
Well, God can do anything he wants. Bottom line, God can do what God wants to do. But when you look at the giftedness, the spiritual gift of healing, as as seen in the New Testament, do you have that in operation today? Yeah, Benny Hinn needs Oh, yeah, right. Benny Hinn needs help. Does Benny Hinn heal like it does in the New Testament? I really wouldn't know because all I know, I see him on TV. Yeah. And the folks said they're walking and all that stuff. Does Benny Hinn heal? Does Benny Hinn? The answer is no. Okay. The answer is there are no, and, and there people have done studies on this, there are no validatable organic healings being done today like they did in the New Testament. Look at the New Testament gift of healing, Christ, or the apostles, all right? How do they heal? Instantaneously. Instantaneously, right? You're not, well, I'm getting better. You know, it was an instantaneous healing. What kind of diseases do they heal? Organic. Organic. I mean, Guy didn't have an arm, now he's got an arm. He didn't have an ear cut off, now it's back on his head. They're blind for, what, their entire life? Now they can see perfectly, 2020. You know, do you have any of that going on today? No, you don't. You don't see any one-legged people going into Benny Hinn's service walking out with two legs. Why is that? Because they don't have the gift of healing. When you look at, when you look at... What was this? What was the purpose of healing? What categorization did it fall into? It was a sign. Why did Christ heal people? As a sign to prove what? His message. First of all, let's understand: God can heal anybody of any disease if He wants to. Right? God is perfectly free to do that. He is sovereign. He can do as He pleases. All right. But do you see Christians today growing new arms? But yet in Mark it says people came to him who were maimed. The word maimed there means missing limbs, and they walked away whole. The point is when you when you compare, and I, we don't have time to do this, but there's a good book by Richard May who talks about divine healing today, and I, it's Richard May who writes this. When you compare what they did in the New Testament, what's going on today, there is no comparison. There is none. By the way, in the, Old, in the New Testament, they were able to raise the dead. Nobody's raising the dead today. In spite of what Oral Roberts says, he did not raise anybody from the dead. And let's put it this way. If Benny Hinn had the gift of healing, he would be able to walk into any hospital in this country and empty it. Because that's what they were able to do. Who did Christ heal? Everybody. Right? He didn't say, no, I'm doing migraines tonight. Come back tomorrow for lower back pain. He could heal them. Physical diseases. He could raise people from the dead instantaneously. All right? And it was always what? A sign. And, and we find in the early church, and you got, you got to trust me on this, you can study it for yourself, is the sign gifts start out, and then they taper off. You know, they start out and then they taper off and then they disappear. Yeah, and you don't see them. God can still do. Is that similar to that? God can still do. Yeah. In that culture. In that culture, you can. There, there are examples of God. And again, God can do anything He wants. The question is: Is it a normal, normative part of our Christian experience, where you have people with the divine gift of healing? that can walk into a hospital and heal anybody of any disease? The answer is no, you don't have that. The kind of diseases they heal are the ones that you don't see. 
you know, the lower back pain, the, 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 the migraines, the whatever it is, you know, the, the, the you don't, you don't see that. You, you, you got to study for yourself. All right. We spend weeks talking about this, but all I'm saying is when you look at the gift of healing in the New Testament with the gift of healing that's purportedly by Benny Hinn and others today, they're, they're not the same. It is not the same thing. And here's the other thing. Who got the, who, who were able to do these miraculous gifts? The apostles, and I put it this way, would God give a miraculous gift to someone who's a heretic? No. So when Kenneth Copeland comes along and says he's got the gift of healing or whatever, but he denies the deity of Christ, what does that tell you? There were there there were there were some others that had it's basically the apostles that had there were some others that were able to to have this miraculous gift but I'm saying well, who who gets who got the signed gifts in the New Testament it was the apostles it was the people who were proclaiming the truth of the word of God when you got a Kenneth Copeland come along who says that he had Jesus appear to him and claim that he never claimed to be God Jesus is not God but yet he supposedly got the gift of healing. You don't have to think long and hard to realize that wherever his gift is coming from, it's not God. Not the biblical gift of healing. That's not going to... Now, may God heal you because he sovereignly desires to do that? Sure, he can do what he wants. I'm not limiting God. I'm not saying God's not allowed to do it. You don't need anybody to lay hands on you. No, pray for yourself. I wonder why the gift of healing and the working of miracles follow right after the gift of faith. I think it was just the it was not it was just the list that he had there. I mean, when some people say, "Well, the problem is you just don't have enough faith to activate that gift." That's the whole thing. You know, there's, you got to activate it by your faith. All right. Well, you know, let's ask a question. You know, in, in some cases in the New Testament, was the healing of the person linked to their faith? Absolutely. In a lot of other cases, was it? No. That guy sitting at the gate, beautiful. He was expecting some alms. He, the last thing he expected was to get up and walk. All right, so you say you have the gift of healing and you go to somebody who's dying and you lay hands on them and they die. Is it your fault? If you just had the faith, you could have activated it and got them, got them healed. I'm saying you have to think this through. I'm not, I'm not trying to belittle, okay? I'm, I'm, trying to, I'm just saying, all I'm saying is when you compare the, the, the New Testament gift of healing and you look at what's being done today in the name of healing, they are miles apart. They're, it's not the same thing. When you look at the New Testament gift of tongues, which was the ability to miraculously speak a known language that was able to be interpreted with a grammar, and you compare that with the gobbledygook mumbo jumbos done in churches today, they're miles apart. When you look at 1 Corinthians 14, which says, if you have somebody speaking in tongues, here's the methodologies and the rules to follow, and you compare that to the average service today, where every one of those rules is broken, you're miles apart. It's not the Holy Spirit. I think it's either demonic, you can work yourself up into this. Um, 
you know, they had it in the mystery religions. They were speaking in tongues up in Delphi. And there's no, I'll tell you what, the Holy Spirit was definitely not there. Well, let's talk about a prayer language. If I sit down here and I pray, if God gives me the ability to miraculously pray a prayer in Korean, and I have no idea what it is I'm praying, is that doing me any good? I'm saying, don't, it's scripture to say, you know, go to your um, your prayer closet. It's, it's, sometimes you don't even know what you're saying. Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. Make All right, let's ask the question. The Holy, yeah, and that's a good question. Let's go ahead. That's Romans 8, 26. The Spirit itself makes intercessions with groanings which cannot be uttered. All right. There's another scripture other than that too, though. No, it's, it's the one they hang it on is that one. It, it says go to your closet in prayer. You know, the, 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 and the, the point that Christ is making in Matthew 5 or Matthew 6 is that you don't need to be on the corner of the street to pray. That's not what gets God's attention. It's the heart. It's your engaged mind of speaking to him. All right. But let's go to Romans chapter 8, verse 26, where it says that the spirit itself bears what or the spirit intercedes for us with groanings which can't be uttered. What are groanings which can't be uttered? What kind of groanings are they? Which means they can't be? No. They can't be spoken. What is that? That's, that's an inter-Trinitarian communication with groanings which can't be uttered. It's not an angelic prayer language and all that. They try to make it a prayer language. There's no evidence for that in the Scripture. Every time you see somebody praying in Scripture... What, what does God want? He wants your brain engaged. He wants you to know, what are you saying to me? If I come and I pray to God in some language, I have no idea what it is I'm praying, what I'm saying, what I'm asking him for, how does that do me any good? It doesn't. In languages. He knew other languages. Well, I think, too. Um, I think you can pray silently. Yeah, there are and some times when you come to God and you just say, spiritual language, because there are times in situations that there are no words. Yeah, and, and I think in that case, God knows your heart. He knows what's on your heart. But that's not some ecstatic utterances you start no, no. making. That's, that's, that's what I'm trying to get at. He's, he's making a point that I think there is, comes a time where... Quietly alone, and that's what God. You could speak in a spiritual language too. If you mean speaking a spiritual language, speaking a language where you're not really kind of, yeah. And that's the Holy Spirit interceding for you. Because sometimes we don't know what we should pray for, and that's valid. But what they want to do is they want to take that verse and translate it into this private prayer language that can be uttered. That's not what Romans eight twenty six is talking about. There are times, isn't it? Were there, were there times in your lives when you went to God and you're so overburdened by whatever it was, you just didn't know what to say? That's right. That's that's Romans eight twenty six. That that's what it's talking about, and it's the Spirit who's interceding for us because the Spirit takes our heart and makes it known to God in a language that God can understand. It's not us praying in some private ecstatic prayer language. But all, all that comes from speaking in tongues, but the Spirit gave them the ability to speak. Of course he did. So it was, it was genuine. For it was genuine back then. But a lot of people's experience, it's like, it's like if I share that I've been saved, 
with someone that's not been saved, they can't argue my experience. And that's and that now that's a that's great. I'm glad you brought that up because we're going to talk about that next week. I mean, there's a lot of people. Here's here's the problem. Here's here's I know where you're going. You pray with for 500 people. Say everyone in here, we go out and by faith, March 16, hold their hands on the sick and they shall recover. Bible says in the book of James that the elders do lay hands on people. Mm -hmm. As an elder and as a pastor, I pray for a lot of people that die. So you didn't have the right faith. No, I don't look at it that way. I'm I'm just saying that some can say I, that. I look at it as I'm doing being a doer of the work. Mm -hmm. So we take all of us in here and we're all commissioned to go out and pray for people. We all come back. Did anyone get here? No. Anyone get here? No. Anyone get here? And John over there says, Yeah, two people got healed that I prayed for out of the three hundred. Is it because he had more faith than us? He had more faith than my man over here? Or her or her? Or is it because he acted on the word of God and God sovereignly worked through his obedience? Yeah, God, God can heal. And again, God can so heal. Is, so, but, but if he stood up and said, God heals. And, 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 and we said, why? Mm -hmm. why? Why did he heal? He said, I don't know why he healed. His word says you can pray for the sick. The word says you can knock, seek, and ask. The word says if you uh, uh, call on God in the day of trouble, he'll answer you. Just all these things. And, I, and I've tried to reason this out, you know, because there's so many scriptures that tell you to pray for the sick. Right. There's so many, and then I'm like, okay, I pray for the sick, but I don't, come on. I don't, it's been 15 years and I don't see anybody raised from the dead. I've seen some people get healed or, or their situation get better. Mm -hmm. Some die. Individuals and people die, and we've had, you know, people our wife support, and then three months later they're out of it mm -hmm. because the church prayed or someone. So, but to, to to argue someone's experience and say, no, what happened to you is not right. What happened to you? You went into that and you prayed for those people, and um, yeah, maybe it didn't happen to all of us, but it happened to him. And it happened according to the one that the, the, that's one that's what I want to hit, hit on on there. We need to be very careful to not validate the word of God by our experience, True. but our experience by the word of God. Yes, that's 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 what I'm trying to get at. Um, the reason I say it is because I had a guy who says I got a revelation to come over and teach you all to speak in tongues. So my Sunday school class, he showed up. He said God gave me a revelation. I had a dream to come over here and teach you how to speak in tongues. I said, well, God didn't give me that dream. All right. Um, and I said, well, let's see what the Bible says about tongues. He said, I don't care what the Bible says about tongues. I had an experience. I know it's genuine. I said, well, you know, what, what does it say here? I don't care what it says there. I'm not interested in studying the Bible. I don't care what the word of God says. I don't care what the Bible says about it. I had an experience that's valid. That's not the way to look at it, folks. Right. You have to filter you know, you, you, the, and all I'm saying is when, when you look at the gift of healing, was there a valid gift of healing in the New Testament? Absolutely. Did that valid gift of healing in the New Testament persist in the second century of the church? No, it did not. It didn't. Historically, it did not. What was the purpose of healing? To validate the message in the New Testament. Once that message was given, do you need the validation? No, you do not. All right. Does that mean God can't heal? Well, no, it doesn't. James says he can heal, right? All right. So God can heal. He can heal anybody of anything that he wants to. But they're instructed. You know, you're, you're, yeah. And, so and one. Set you up. Okay. I'm going to send you over here to pray for the sick. And I know they're not going to get healed, but I just want to 
don't think God just sets us up. But but let me argue. Let me argue. Gosh, no, no. Get stuck on healing, but it's an important discussion. It's an important discussion. Um, one of the difficulties we have, and let's step back a minute here, and then we'll come back at it, is we have the mentality in Christianity today that sick is bad. Would you agree to that? Yeah. Sick is bad. That's one thing you want to say is, what did you do to get like that? All right. What we need to understand, I think, is sick is normal. Right? We live in a fallen universe, right? What's going to happen? Someday, every person in this room is going to get sick and die. Or they're just going to die, right? Every one of us. Okay, that's normal part of fallenness. So the goal of the Christian life is not to try to constantly keep praying that every time I get a sniffle or a cold or something, God heals me and makes me feel good. What is the goal of my Christian life? To become more like Christ. Now, if I can do that by getting healed, wonderful, great. But maybe that's not God's will for me. Look at Johnny Erickson, right, who got, you know, became a quadriplegic, you know. Was it God's will to heal her? Could God have healed her? Absolutely. God can do anything he wants. But why didn't he? Because if God would have healed her, we would have never heard of Johnny Erickson Tata. But because God didn't heal her, she has a ministry to the handicapped people and reached people for Christ that she would have never done had she been a healthy little girl and not had that accident. We got we to gotta look beyond our sickness and see the grander purpose. Okay, and that's when when you come back into James chapter five there, um, MacArthur has an excellent treatment on that in his commentary on James, um, where he makes the case that that's not talking about necessarily um, physical diseases. It's talking about people who are in persecution and that are weak and discouraged. And that's the words used to describe that. And the elders are to come and to encourage them. And the word there for for laying hands on creo means to not. There's two words for in the Greek for laying hands. There's creo, which is, or alipho, which means to lay your hands on. I'm going to get these backwards. Somebody can look them up and correct me. Alipho means to lay hands on, like you lay hands on the goat, you know, to identify with it. And then there's creo, which comes from your fingers, which means to rub, to massage. And the word there is you are to massage, rub them with oil, medicinal. And they say there's a medicinal context behind that as that you're to encourage, and if they're sick, you're to rub them, give them medicine, take care of them. And if they've committed sin, it will be forgiven them. Um, but the word there for, is, for disease is weakness. But you got to look, you know, there's a whole, I think he does an excellent treatment on that. Because one of the difficulties with that passage is that if you just read it, it says, and the prayer of faith will save the sick, that means if that guy dies, you didn't have the faith. I mean, if you take it... If you take strict literal face value, that's what James is saying. You go lay hands on a guy, you anoint him with oil, and he falls over dead. You didn't have faith. It's your fault he's dead. Because you didn't have enough faith to heal him. So if you want to go down that route, that's a tough one to go down as a pastor. So all I'm saying is, is, is look, when you look at the miraculous sign gifts, what are the miraculous gifts? Healing, tongues, interpretation of tongues, and miracles or powers, dunamis. And in the in the New Testament, the miracles were the ability to cast out demons, right? That that's what miracles were. They were the ability to cast out demons. The word miracles there is power, dunamis, powers, cast out demons. 
those were valid gifts in the early church. They had those. Okay. Yeah. And, and, and now did, did, uh, yeah, well, the, were the disciples able to cast out demons? Well, sure. In the name of Christ, they were able to do that. All right. And why were those sign gifts given? They were given to validate the message of the gospel. And they were given as a sign of judgment against Israel. Remember, it says in Joel that I'm going to bring people with different languages that you're not going to understand. It was a judgmental sign to the Jew. And that's brought out in Acts chapter 2. But what you find historically is as you go into the second and third centuries of the church, these gifts disappeared. You don't see any mention of them. Let's take the gift of tongues. In what books of the Bible do you find tongues? Acts and Corinthians. Is there any mention of tongues in the pastoral epistles on how to work, how to how to do things in the church? No, no mention at all. Romans, no mention at all. That's it. And in fact, the context of tongues in Corinthians, is it a positive or a negative context? It's a negative context. So if tongues was a normal part that everybody should be doing, what would you expect to see in the New Testament? A lot more than that. And what you find, though, is they died out. It, it, they, they ceased to be. They ceased. After the first century, they went away. And we're going to make case for that in 1 Corinthians 13. We're going to get there. Don't worry. But there, it was valid in the New Testament. And what Paul and the problem in the Corinthian church, and, and I'm going to get ahead of myself, but in 31, it says, but earnestly desire the best gifts. Verse 31. Okay. For 1231, mm-hmm. earnestly desire the best gifts. Um, anybody who takes Greek understands that Greek verbs have verb forms. Okay. And there, there, it's interesting that there is one verb form that's identical. Okay. That verb form is one, the imperative mood. What's imperative? Command. Command. Do this. Okay, that's an imperative. Another one is a statement of fact. Okay. So this word here, but earnestly desire, can be translated one of two ways. Way number one, but you are desiring the best in the context of the showy gift. Or it could be, you need to desire, imperative mood, command, the best gift. All right? Now, which mode do you think Paul is using here? Think about that. He's not saying desire the best gift. He's saying, but you're desiring the showy gift. I'm going to show you a better way. You're desiring the tongues. You want to, every one of you wants to speak in tongues and be the one standing up in front, you know, sputtering, ecstatic. I'm going to show you a better way. That's not what you should do. Okay. There are two ways to interpret that, but we'll get there. I, again, I, I feel bad because we're, we're, we're trying to do so much and so little time. I feel, I feel like it's disconnected, but it does, it does adhere together. Okay. The bottom line here is we, we have through verse 11, the Holy Spirit is behind the gifts. In the early church at this time, all the gifts were in operation. The argument is, did the sign gifts cease? I believe they did. Historically, they did. You can make the, the theological case that they did. We'll do that next week. But for now, they were in operation. And, Paul, and then Paul says in verse 12, what, what, is the, what is the reason for the gifts? Well, it's unity. And he uses the metaphor of a body. You have a body 
It has many members, but all the members of that one being, body being many are one body. You have different things. You have toes and fingers and eyes and ears and different organs. And all of those things are working together for the purpose of your life. And the quality of your life and your abilities are directly related to how well all those components work together. Okay? For by one spirit we were all baptized in the one body, whether Jews nor Greeks, slaves nor free, and have all been made to drink in the one spirit. What baptism is this? This is spirit baptism. What does it mean to be baptized in the spirit? Well, Benny Hinn says you get a dose of the Holy Spirit and you start speaking in tongues. And then you get a double dose and you get the anointing. And that's a higher level. What does it mean to be placed into the body of Christ? What does the Holy Spirit do? At the moment of salvation, the Holy Spirit takes you. And what does he do? He identifies you and places you into the body of Christ. And in this metaphor, what does that body of Christ have many of? Members. So what do you become? A member of the body of Christ. And how many, you have different members, right? Just like your body has different members, <coughs> the body of Christ has different members. But we're one body. But we have different functions. Different members have different things that they do. Yes. Well, what is the baptism of fire? Judgment. That's judgment. Baptism of the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is identified theologically as the Holy Spirit takes you and places you into the body of Christ. At that moment, you know, a lot of things happen. You are regenerated. You're born again. You're justified. You're sanctified. You're placed in the body of Christ. You're given a spiritual gift. You know, that all happens at the moment of your salvation. Every, every, every time we speak of like fire in Scripture, that doesn't mean judgment. Not every time, but the baptism of fire, when Christ is talking about, you know, um, um, I'm trying to remember, it's back in um, Matthew 3. Yeah, Matthew, back Matthew 3. The baptism of fi fire there is, is judgment. The burning of, yeah, the burning of judgment. Yeah. John baptizes you with water, but he's coming after him. He's baptizing you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Okay, if you're not baptized in the Holy Spirit and placed in the body of Christ, what are you baptized with? Judgment. Fire, judgment. What about when the um, Spirit came down and the Spirit was the external manifestation. And he said it was like it. They were trying to describe the indescribable. You know, the baptism of fire is judgment. And that's what Christ, he's got his winnowing fork in his hand. What's the winnowing fork do? Well, back in those days... The winnowing fork, you take your wheat and you throw it up in the air and the shaft would be blown by the wind and the wheat would fall down. And what did you do with the shaft? You burn it. All right. It was a separation process. Okay. And that, that's that's the short answer for you there. Um, 311, is it? 311? Yeah. Matthew 311. Yeah. Got to go back and understand context, 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 you know. Um, and, and he's saying here, uh, verse 15, what if the foot says, you know, I'm not a hand, so I'm not part of the body. I want to be a hand. 
um, is it not of the body? What if the ear says, um, because I'm not an eye, I'm not of the body? Is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where would be the smelling? But God has set the members, each one of them, in the body just as he pleased. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? Here's the point that he's trying to make. He's drawing an analogy. God has placed you in the body of Christ. Is everybody an eyeball? If everybody was an eyeball, where would the hearing be? If everybody was a finger, where would the toes be? He's, he's trying to make an analogy here. And the analogy is God has not gifted every single person identically. There needs to be a diversity in the body. It functions together. And you can't say, because I'm not that, I don't want to be part of the body. Because I don't have the gift of, in this context, because I'm not the one with the gift of tongues, I don't want to, I don't want to exercise my gift. That's not, that's not going to help the body. What if your feet decide not to work? You sit there, right? What if your eyes decide, we're not going to see anymore because we're not the ear. We're not going to look for you. You know, and that's, that's the analogy he's trying to, to make here. The body functions healthfully when it all functions as it is designed to function, as God has placed each person in. But now, indeed, there are many members, yet one body. And the eye, here's, what's the first problem? The first problem is the, the eye wants to be the ear, the ear wants to be something else, right? The second problem is the eye saying, I don't need a foot, right? You can't do that. Because if the eye were didn't have a foot, what would the eye do? It'd sit and look at the same thing all day long, wouldn't it? Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. No, much rather, those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. The, the most necessary parts of your body are the ones that are, are not the most visible, aren't they? Right? I mean, that's just the way it is. The more necessary the component, the less visible it is, you know. And and what it's saying, these members of the body, which we think to be less honorable, on these we so greater honor, and our unpresentable parts have greater modesty, but our presentable parts have no need. You cover up the more unpresentable parts, but you see your face, right? But the face can't say, well, I don't need the foot. But I can't say, I don't need the foot. He's drawing an analogy. What makes a body function best when all the parts do their function? When the eye does what an eye does, when the ear does what an ear does. And when the ear recognizes that it needs the eye as much as the eye recognizes it needs the ear. We all need each other. And I can't, in my, in, in my exercise in my spiritual gift, I can say, well, you know, I got the gift of teaching. I don't need the janitors. How, how often would you all come here if we never cleaned the bathrooms? You know? That's the part we need. That's why today uh, somebody say, I know Bible. I don't need to go to church. I stay home and watch TV and uh, worship mm -hmm. the TV. So universally. That's like your foot saying, absolutely, that's like your foot saying, I'm going to stay at home today. You go off to work. I'm going to stay at home. I mean, draw an analogy, absurd. And and we we and what it is here, what Paul's trying to get at is in the body of Christ, every one of us, when we are spiritually gifted, every one of us is going to edify and build up the body of Christ and make it function well when we do what God has called us to do. I will do you no good sitting at home watching TV every Thursday. 
I will do you no good at all. And I will do me no good at all. Right? I, my function in the body of Christ is to come here and teach. Your function is whatever it is. You're, you're the pastor. If you sit at home and say, well, you know, I can, I, can, I can worship God in front of the TV on Sunday morning. You're not ministering to kids. You're not reaching them with Christ. You're not encouraging them and building them up. That's what God's called you to do. And Paul is telling you in the body, just as in a physical body, each member is necessary. And one member can't say, because I'm not that member, I'm not important. Nor can a member say, I don't need another one. We, we both need it. But God composed the body, having given greater honor to the part which lacks it. That there should be no schism. What's a schism? Division in the body. But that the members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are the body of Christ and members individually. That's what he's saying. You're the body of Christ. Just like Jesus Christ is one of the cornerstones. He's the head, right? right? Christ is the head. Yes. We are the what? The, body. Each, 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 uh, each segment mm -hmm. uh, joined together. Right. Uh, forming. That's why Jesus Christ would be the cornerstone and head. Yep. He commanding every each part, food and uh, body. Also, he, each member makes a formally stay there. Mm -hmm. It's cornerstone there. The, your church, whatever church you find yourself in, the local body of Christ or the church universal will be most healthy when the individuals in your church do what God has called them to do. And you will find, however it works out, God does it miraculously, that you will look in your church and you will have everybody you need to do what God's called you to do. And the way it's going to work is you've got to get members of the body to understand to do their part, not someone else's part. And to not get this idea that I don't need that person. I don't need that function. We all need each other. And and quite honestly, what is your reward in closing? We're, I'm five minutes. What's your reward eternally based on? Your gift or your faithfulness? Your faithfulness. That's what it's based on. Not what gift you have. That's why we, we are all uh, in the member of yes. body of Jesus Christ. Yeah. That's why we listen to verse 26. They report hurt. We have to protect ourselves. All of us hurt. Even hurt. I don't know about but you, but my whole body functions better. You get a so corn on your foot, you it hurts. Yeah, we need to help one another. So, anyways, we're, I went a few minutes over. I'm sorry. So, um... <laughs> We'll pick up here next week. Father, thanks so much for this time and for studying your word. Help us to remember it, understand it, know it, obey it, and live it. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.